morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 13, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest will be Bill Blunden, co-author of Behold a Pale Farce, Cyber War, Threat Inflation, and the Malware Industrial Complex, a rigorous treatment of all the myths and the real hardware churning in the spying business. Then we direct our attention to the California primary this June 3rd with my second guest, Neil Kelly, the director or the Orange County Registrar Voters, who will lead us through the deadlines, the composition of the ballot, and the adjustments we'll be making from the primary to the general election. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Well, while Heartbleed Bug has been dealt with, we all ponder what the other problems and vulnerabilities are running amok in cyberspace. My first guest today is Bill Blunden, co-author with Violet Chung. She's not on the show. Bill is our guest uh, of the recently published Behold a Pale Farce, Cyber War, Threat Inflation, and the Malware Industrial Complex. His appearance is timely as, I wouldn't say more attention, I get increasingly more sophistication. Consumers of the uh, cybersphere um, and more awareness of what's going on mounts here. Uh, Bill is a computer security researcher, currently involved with information security, anti-forensics, and institutional analysis. His other books include Software Exorcism, Cube Farm, and Offshoring IT, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. He's published in Peace and Conflict Journal of Peace Psychology and Aggressive Behavior. Bill was a physics major where he received his undergraduate degree at Cornell University and completed his Master's of Science and Operations Research at Case Western Reserve University. He comes to us today from San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Bill Blunden. Thanks, Claudia. It's great to be here. Well, I want to say I learned a ton. I have a new uh, sort of a moniker for it. It's the tale of two Schmitz. Yes. <laughs> the Eric Schmidt and the Stasi Schmidt. That one one of them got more data than the other one did. So we're yeah. we're, we're going to haul into that. Um, you you point out that no country that has been vilified in our political setting and, and throughout the mainstream media, no country that's really been vilified as being responsible for for stirring up uh, the cyber war a scenario, nobody can touch the U.S. in spying. How how do we know that? Well, I, I think the best way to, to, to understand that is to, to look at the amount of resources that we channel to uh, our intelligence agencies. Uh, according to the uh, Federation of American Scientists, uh, if you were to merge the civilian and military budgets, they, we spend our governments allocate something on the order of $70 billion to our intelligence agencies. And that's, that's more than most governments even spend on their entire military. Um, so that's a good indicator of, of, of uh, and I think also the Snowden revelations show the extent of what we're doing. You know, this, this money that we're funneling, the $70 billion, there's just a myriad of different compartmentalized programs. Um, for example, the NSA has something called the Office of Tailored Access Operations, uh, which over a 12-year period uh, compromised something on the order of 50,000 foreign networks. Uh, and, and so in that, ca- it, it, in that sense, I think it's probably easier to ask what the NSA hasn't compromised rather than what they have compromised. I mean, just today, uh, there was a story that, that's come out in The Guardian about uh, the NSA subverting routers and servers that leave the country for overseas. Uh, so as it's, as it's being shipped, it's intercepted, and they compromise it, and then they send it on its merry way. Um, so you can imagine all the equipment overseas that's compromised, pre, pre ready to go um, by access by our intelligence services. Uh, for another example um, of a program, the, the NSA and the CIA, obviously the NSA doesn't exist in a vacuum. They cooperate with other agencies. They have a joint operation with the CIA known as the Special Collection Service, uh, and that's, that's basically for hands-on 
uh, access when they can't uh, hack a machine remotely. Maybe they need to get their uh, actually directly access a machine. Maybe it's there's, it's air gapped, or maybe they need to do some surveillance ahead of time, or t- tail somebody, or do some breaking and entering to get to the machine. Uh, they'll bring in the, um, the the officers from the CIA to help them do that. Um, and these programs are enabled by this this mass subversion uh, campaign that the NSA has. This is something that's that's literally industry wide. Uh, it covers thousands of corporate entities that uh, collaborate with the NSA to put back doors into their products. Uh, these are intentionally either bugs which are you know uh, designed to look like just a simple flaw or more complicated back doors that are put in. Uh, or maybe it's just weakening uh, encryption protocols uh, on behalf of the NSA so they can uh, decrypt things a little easier. Uh, but this this mass subversion campaign enables these these activities and uh, uh, the, the ultimate goal of the NSA is to, in terms of their subversion programs, is to industrialize the process of compromise so that they can they can hack literally millions of machines at a time and manage them and extract information out of them. Uh, this was uh, they had a system that was that came out in one of the Snowden documents. It was uh, called uh, the, the the Turban system, and this document came out in 2009. So it's been several years since then and so i i'm fairly confident they have something like that up and running right now they and uh, yeah okay and uh, and you also explain with attribution that the way in which all of these systems are designed uh, that there it's a very fluid uh, uh maneuverability of of these systems around so tracing back to the actual uh responsible spying party it just can't be done. You, it, it's a, you, you may think that the the spy is working from a Chinese uh, a time zone and uh, they're not busy during Chinese holidays or that kind of a thing, but it could all be coming right through Miami and uh, with with the continual tracking, and they still don't know with whom you're dealing. Correct. The, the, the Pentagon's original approach to how to handle this was they wanted to rely on an offensive approach. In other words, right. they said, we want to protect you by, by going down the offense. We want to to, to kind of pull out, pull, pull, uh, uh, use the Cold War strategy of deterrence, which which relies heavily on massive retaliation. So, in other words, we, we, would, we would build all these cyber weapons and just threaten people. If you attack us, we will unleash these on you. And this is convenient for them because... This channels a lot of money to the defense industry. This whole approach, obviously, if you have massive retaliation, you've got to have a lot of, a lot Hardware. of offensive right. uh, tools. Uh, and this not, this makes sense uh, because the, the the defense industry it represents a business sector which, uh, which, dominates the arms industry. We account for something like three fourths of worldwide arms sales in terms of heavy arms. Uh, we might have lost our manufacturing base in the 1970s and 80s. But we we still dominate the arms industry, and so it's only natural that they're going to push for an offensive approach. Um, the problem is that, is that with deterrence, you know, you, with with massive retaliation in particular, you've got to be able to find out who's attacked you. If you're going to if you're going to retaliate, you've got to know who's attacked you, so you re- retaliate against the right party. It just so happens that both the U.S. government and and private sector corporations have invested heavily in anti forensic technology. Uh, to to foil the process of attribution. Um, in other words, they they do this because they want to be able to spy and operate anonymously. Uh, for example, there's a there's a, com- a company called Intrepid, which uh, has a service called the Internet Operations Network. And according to the marketing literature for this, which you can see at WikiLeaks, uh, and also I think the Wall Street Journal has published part of the marketing material for Intrepid. Uh, you can this this product, this Internet Operations Network, uh, provides what they called uh, operational non-attribution. So, in other words, governments and companies have intentionally invested in, the, in these tools to foil attribution. Uh, and it, it would be silly to think that other governments haven't also, and other companies in other countries haven't also created these types of tools. Uh, and so, I think the whole idea of deterrence is kind of is kind of flawed in that sense. Um, and it it basically be a huge waste of money. We'd just be funneling money, developing offensive weapons, and you know, um, there's there's this big threat that you know, not only would we not be able to identify who attacked us, but we might we might you know come to the wrong conclusion. We might you know mistakenly conclude that it was somebody who who was otherwise uninvolved. Um, 
And so this this kind of makes deterrence a big waste of money. But that that uh, as far as the Pentagon is concerned, that's fine because their their forte is wasting money. Um, I mean, the Government Accounting Office every year uh, declares that they can't audit the Pentagon's budget. Uh, and since 1996, the the Department of Defense has wasted something on the order of $8.5 trillion, which is on the same scale as the Chinese GDP. So uh, this, is a, this is an area where the defense industry and the Pentagon excels at wasting money. So, um, But again, the attribution, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a lost cause, and that's an intentional you know, uh, um, development because uh, governments and companies want it to be that way. They, do, they, don't want, they, they want attribution for everyone but them. Um, it's it's kind of a um, anonymity for the one percent and it develop these tools. It allows for that uh, hyperventilation in in Congress that uh, is drumming up more uh, financial support for the cyber war versus the cyber um, the cyber attacks. Which are, you make a huge a huge distinction between the two. Why don't you just briefly do that for us, Bill? Well, there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of uh, espionage that goes on. There's a lot of crime. Um, there's sabotage that happens on the Internet. Um, this is a serious problem. It's not an existential problem, um, but it's something we need to pay attention to. But there's very little war. Um, there's, there's really, I mean, and semantics are important because if you go to the doctor's office, you know, their diagnosis, uh, you know, they, they make a diagnosis and they, they prescribe uh, solutions and and uh, resolutions based on their d- diagnosis, um, and so uh, by 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 framing things in terms of war, you're you're naturally leading people to to the Pentagon and the defense industry for solutions. So the, this whole framing of war is really a rhetorical tool. Uh, it, it's conflation. You're taking crime and espionage. Uh, and sabotage, and you're 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 conflating the definition of war so that it, it includes all of those, so that you can lead people naturally to to the solutions that are offered by the defense industry. Um, as far as our, our boogeyman of, of the day is concerned, I think China is probably you know who our officials tend to point their fingers at most frequently. Uh, I, especially you know companies like Huawei, they say to stay away from Huawei. I think it's it's ironic that you know. We are doing this the same thing. Like I said, this news release in the Guardian today, they they talked about our, our companies, you know, cooperating and NSA compromising these devices that are going overseas. We're we're doing exactly what we're accusing other um, uh, other countries and other companies of doing. You know, it's it's such a widespread practice that the, the State Department actually has a term for it. It's called diplomacy. Uh, you go around accusing. Uh, other countries are doing something when it turns around and when their backs are turned, you're doing that exact same thing. I'm sorry, um, the, there's a little hop in the, the broadcast. The, what kind sure. of diplomacy? Skiz diplomacy. Skiz. How do, how do you spell skiz? As in schizophrenia. Oh, schizophrenia. Oh, that's okay. Okay. And you point out with really well documented uh, uh, passages throughout, the, I mean, it's loaded, that it's a it's a bipartisan effort to uh, drum up this. that, that most, uh, either party in Congress has a fundraising portfolio that includes the the cyber industry, so it's um, it's a equal opportunity <laughs> compromising well, of of the getting that uh, getting our intellectual uh, capacity straight on uh, the the real uh, the menace here. I think that um, what, what you have to understand is that. Ever since the end of the of, the, of this, ever since the Soviet Union disintegrated, um, the de- defense industry has been struggling to maintain strategic relevance, uh, and they need they need new threats. Um, there was a book by a former C- a former CIA officer named John Stockwell. He he was entitled "In Search of Enemies," and that's kind of uh, the kind of the, the thought process for the for the defense industry. They need growth areas to move into. Uh, like drones and cyber, um, because they have this budget that, that hovers above five hundred billion, um, and that's twice what, well over twice what China spends on their on their defense budget. Uh, if you took everyone else in the world, all the other governments, and, and merged their defense budgets together, it's, it would be bigger than that. Uh, so they have reasons why they need to uh, kind of uh, paint this this picture of threat. Uh, 
And like you said, um, you know, if you if you ask them why why do we need all why do we spend so much money, they all say all oh, national security. But the truth is that that this this funding this this budget it it channels money to um, a small group of people that just happen to have their hands on the levers of power in D.C. And like you said, it's bipartisan um, because they've cultivated these contacts over decades. These are relationships, long-standing agreements that they have with with people in Congress and and with groups and with both parties. Um, and uh, this is one area where there is definitely bipartisan consensus, and that is that we have to spend so much on our on our defense industry. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Bill Blunden, computer security researcher and co-author of the recently published book, Behold, a Pale Farce, Cyber War, Threat Inflation, and the Malware Industrial Complex. And we're talking about uh, the boogeyman of the of surveilling and cyber attack potential of the cyber war phenomena. And I just want to back walk back a little bit that some skeptics would say, well, we can't really go by the Chinese national budget because th- that they're getting a lot more bang out of their buck with an undervalued labor force. So we could we could perhaps use your other better documented uh, aspect in your book about how uh, the, the how the systems are built and rigged and, and our potential in this end. So it's because um, I, I just want to put that in there because I'm, I'm a little skeptical we can use that financial uh, fiscal gauge of, of the threat. So um, you talk about we're allowing ourselves to be we're willfully participating in this fear-mongering, and, uh, it's, and you're, you're pointing out that, you know, we can have our privacy and we can have our security both as you get to the, to the prescriptive end. So I, I want to make sure before we find out we have no time left that you can talk to that balance. Okay. Um, this is something that, that, that I, I would definitely have noticed uh, in, out in public debate. For example, the New York Times Tom Friedman published an article, an op-ed piece um, called "Blowing a Whistle," where he basically said his argument was that we should sacrifice a little liberty up front uh, to prevent it, uh, an attack, uh, and in doing so, we could prevent ourselves from losing all of our all of our freedoms as a result of the attack. In other words, there's going to be a huge uh, terrorist attack, uh, and it will be so horrific that we'll 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 lose all of our freedoms. And so, why don't we just give up a little freedom up front? And for this, for this uh, surveillance apparatus that the NSA has developed, just yield a little bit of our essential liberty uh, for that and prevent these attacks, which will take away all of our liberty. And there was such a negative response to that op-ed that Bill Keller also wrote a, a follow-up um, op-ed in the New York Times, basically where he agreed he tried to reinforce um, Friedman's argument. I think his, his piece was called Living with the Surveillance State. Uh, so ultimately you have that same position. Let's give up a little liberty up front and save it save most of our liberty in the long run and I think that uh, it's it's ultimately uh, the argument is that we we should undermine the Constitution to save it and it reminds me of the arguments that were made about Iraq we have to destroy Iraq in order to save it I think that even our founding fathers would, would disagree with this with the standpoint Benjamin Franklin said those who would yield essential liberty on behalf of a little temporary security right. deserve neither liberty nor security right. i don't think we have to give up liberty to have security it's not terrorism that erodes freedom it's our response to it uh, back in world war ii when the british were being bombed by the germans oh, the yes. government good idea uh, yes go ahead the government would post these put these posters up all over the place and the posters would say remain calm carry on and that's exactly, as a society, how we need to ap- approach terrorist attack. We need to remain calm and carry on. Look, the, the, probably the, the, the epitome of how the, the right way to handle something like this has been given to us by the Japanese government. When they were attacked, uh, those nerve gas attacks by Aung Shinrikyo in the subway system, Right, right. Uh, you, you have to look at what they did uh, and look at what they didn't do. You know, they didn't rely on indefinite detention. They didn't torture people. They didn't use mass interception. They didn't suspend civil liberties. What the Japanese did was that they uh, got their investigators, their criminal investigators, sent them out, you know, to to uh, do investigations, uh, indict people, and then try them in a civilian court. Uh, and and that's exactly what you know how how it should how you should respond to terror, uh, and how you should respond to threats like that. You don't you don't go running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You need to remain calm and carry on. So I think we can't have liberty and we can have security also um, I think when it comes to 
to the to the problems that we face. Um, I think that in terms of what allows these attacks to succeed, uh, people choose poor passwords or they misconfigure their machines. But I think at the end of the day, people are being subject to technical flaws that they can't do anything about. You mentioned Heartbleed at the beginning of the right. show. Um, and it, it reinforces, I mean, th- these attacks succeed even in high-security environments because they're using these zero-day exploits, these flaws in software and in hardware. Okay, and um, uh, slow down. So zero-day exploit, make yeah. sure our audience understands exactly what you mean. You refer back to that many times as you accumulate speed in your book. Yes, zero-day exploit is basically a bug which hasn't been patched. So in other words, people have known about it for zero days. A vulnerability of a yes, software it's, system. It's basically a bug or some some mistake, some sloppy, you know, either something that's intentional or something that's put in there unintentionally. Right. It's an engineering flaw or it's an intentional backdoor, but it's a bug that can be leveraged. Um, and there have been attacks in, 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 in the Pentagon which leverage zero-day exploits and also... You know, Stuxnet, which we used in Iran's uh, nuclear enrichment facility, that leveraged four different zero-day exploits. Um, and so I think that when, it, when it comes down to it, this is really where we need to focus. We need to focus on we're going to have better security by eliminating these bugs. We have the accidental bugs, which are a result of sloppy engineering, but we also have the intentional bugs, which are placed there for covert access, either by corporate interests or by on behalf of intelligence services. Um, and I think that, you know, as far as, you know, th- this isn't just necess- a, t- a technical problem. There are economic aspects, and there are also, even more importantly, there are political aspects to this. Um, as far as, as the software industry is concerned, these bugs, you know, if they're sloppy, if they have sloppy engineering, there are bugs, and there's security incidents that occur. For, for these companies, it's, it's seen as a negative externality. In other words, the company doesn't bear the cost of, of an incident that results from its sloppy code. Uh, instead, the customer bears that cost, and so there's really no incentive for them to to make things any secure. Maybe for some marketing purposes, maybe to so people think that they're making things more secure. But uh, there isn't that they're not really bearing the cost. They're not feeling the pain of these security incidents. Right. So, so it's I think yeah. the insurance company or the bank that's saddled with uh, trying to clear up that bug and and work with their customers, and then that turns into an, a new fee. A, a, kind of arrangement with those companies that's passed on to the consumer. So it's, yeah. a, it's and so I, I wanted to, um, when we're talking about this dynamic going on, so I, I know that, that your co-author talks, uh, Violet talk, uh, presents this sort of psychological aspect of what's playing on here. And I, I'm surprised that there's uh, no mention of Naomi Klein, who brought up the, the Shock Doctrine. is a terrific book that talked about how opportunity gets taken when we're traumatized with a hit, with an attack of some kind. And uh, I think that she has a lot to contribute with the cases that you're making here. I, I, I would agree with you. I'm, I'm familiar with uh, Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. I think we have kind of we have some similar um, kind of terms uh, that we use. Uh, you know, that from from a from the standpoint of hard kind of quantitative statistical analysis, there have been no instances of cyber Armageddon of these worst case scenarios that they talk about. And then, but they talk the, the people who promote these scenarios and talk about them and. Uh, they, they act as though they could predict what the likelihood is. And in, furthermore, they tend to focus on how bad it's going to be when it happens. And, and yes. Yeah, this is so that this is, this is, this is the tell of the, of the propaganda technique. It's not there to appeal to reason. It's there to induce an emotional response. It's, this is threat inflation. Uh, you take yes. a, a, a relatively small threat, you blow it up and make it look huge. And we saw this it, before Iraq, when they talked about the the mushroom cloud, the the smoking gun that came in the form of a mushroom cloud, this this threat inflation it, it stokes anxiety. It's not necessarily fear because fear paralyzes, but it's anxiety because anxiety spurs you to action, and this induces kind of a crisis mentality. And this comes back to Naomi, Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, where they use uh, some sort of disaster where people are anxious as a result of something and use that as an opportunity. And because someone who's in this crisis mentality where they're, they're anxious and, you know, they've been subject to threat inflation, uh, they, they'll pay any price to be safe. And Congress and, will all pile on with the Patriot Act and they'll appropriate yes. money like crazy. And we have Barbara yes. Lee all on her own who had the critical thinking ability not to join the lemmings over the cliff. And, and, and among those that keep 
touting this whole cyber war situation, Congressman Mike Rogers, his tautology about not your privacy is not being violated if you don't know that it's not being violated. And now this guy is retiring from Congress. He's going to, I just read in today's New York Times or the day before, oh, the Sunday Times magazine, that he's leaving Congress to join the radio wave. So he gets to saturate that message all the further with that unopposed kind of a forum for him to speak at. Yes, yes. I think that he. I think he realizes that he. He's made a fool of himself so completely that anyone who wanted to run against him would have a pretty easy time of 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 uh, of, of exposing all of these all these statements that he's made that are ridiculous. Well, unfortunately, uh, the New York Times and, made him out to be a moderate, and they're talking about his transition to to the media. So, uh, sure, everybody gets that he's yes, uh, that fringe. Yes. Yes, uh, I, I see what you're saying. Um, <laughs> so to go to go back to this this threat inflation. Yes, um, that, you have to understand. There's plenty of different types of insurance you can buy, but a rational person won't go out and buy all of them. A rational person will will see what their exposure is, right? Do a calculation of what what they think the level of risk is, and then carefully do a cost benefit analysis and then choose how they're going to protect themselves. But when you're in this crisis mentality, like I said, you'll pay any amount of money to be safe. And in doing so, you end up wasting a lot of resources and yielding civil liberties to protect yourself at a very high cost when you could use your money so much wisely to, to safeguard yourself at a much lower cost. Uh, and I think as far as these attacks go, and the, the, the offensive approach is, just comp- is, is entirely flawed. Um, as I said, I think that this is, this is a, 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 not just a technical problem, it's also an economic and political problem. Uh, with, as far as... Uh, as far as the software industry goes, like I said, they see it as a negative externality. So we need to redirect the cost back onto software companies so they realize they have to take it seriously and they have to do a careful job with their software. They have to make it a priority. I, I get um, those, and, yes. And that's going to mean regulation. I get those uh, prescriptions, but we're going to have a hard time turning this freight train around in that direction with these portfolios uh, in Congress, uh, financial portfolios being lined with the malware industrial portfolios. Yes. That's so, why it's also a political problem. It's because huge. Because these, these companies, and also the, the defense industry, which backs up the intelligence agencies, they lobby heavily in Congress, and they have a lot of influence. Uh, and w- I think this is why, to really impose this type of change where we disarm the intelligence agencies, and we regulate the software industry, so we, we eliminate the, we, we help to eliminate the, the accidental flaws, and we eliminate the intentional flaws, it's going to take a mass political mobilization. Well, um, and I think that if, if you want a, an example of what's, what the dynamic is happening here, you look back to 1971, where a bunch of activists broke into an FBI office uh, near Philadelphia uh, to, 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 to steal some documents which exposed an illegal pro- program called COINTELPRO. And they did this because they realized no one else was going to help them. Congress wasn't going to help them. Senators weren't going to help them. The president wasn't going to help them. They realized if anything was going to happen about this, it was going to be up to them. And so in a similar way, I think it's up to us. We have to get engaged, and we have to put pressure on our representatives so that they represent us and so that they, we basically make them do it. Well, I'll just remind everybody, my guest in this portion of the show is Bill Blunden. He's recently published his book, Behold a Pale Farce, Cyber War, Threat Inflation, and the Malware Industrial Complex. At the last few moments here are the minutes I'm going to give it. I'm going to run over a little bit this half hour. Frontline tonight on the public broadcasting system uh, is going to, in their production called United States of Secrets, they're going to talk with uh, Bill Benny is a person you quote extensively in your big yes. book, and uh, Kirk Weeby and Ed Loomis, they're featured, and uh, the key word for uh, what they were about was the Thin Thread program. I don't think you mentioned the Thin Thread program. You talked about the program that booted those guys. Uh, they were very interested in the Thin Thread program. They thought it had merit. There's there's no spoiler alerts, everybody. We know what happened, but uh, but they'll talk about what happened with them and why their jaws dropped at how much money was being thrown out the program that replaced the Thin Thread program. Uh, and the fact that they, they tried to do everything within the system that when finally Edward Snowden uh, came out, that uh, a quote in uh, an interview that these... Um, that was picked up 
about the production on Fresh Air on uh, WHYY yesterday is that, that I quote one of the three, Benny, Vivi, or Loomis, is that there was still another whistleblower out there when they saw Edward Snowden's uh, revelations being published in The Guardian. Back to The Guardian. <laughs> Follow that <laughs> news service, everybody. So since there were no provisions, they realized what Edward Snowden was uh, trying to do. And so they, inside, NSA veterans are are validating the work that Edward Snowden has done. So tonight on Frontline or whenever people can follow it online, then it's a, it's going to whet in your appetite for Bill Blunden's Behold a Pale Farce book. And and if you want, there you've got a, Bill, give us your website for more information about you and for how the people can get a copy of this book. Sure. I'm, uh, I post a lot of my stuff. I track news and have blog entries and have most of the stuff that I publish online is at belowgotham.com, um, as in the city of Gotham, below right. Gotham. Uh, and uh, you can pick up the book at Trine Day, which is my publisher. I believe they have a special for the book. You can also pick it up at Barnes & Noble. And if you absolutely have to, you can also probably pick it up at Amazon. Oh, well, but don't forget, your independent publishers group has their own website page, too. Yes. So, um, so IPG.com, folks, just give them help. Help Bill plug this. So uh, it's it's a very, very thoughtful book. It's got a style that is calm. It's reasoned. It's uh, it has its flair from time to time. It's not an entertaining book, but you've got a flair, so you keep you keep the reader moving right along with what what's going on to help us sort of shake off the the uh, the overextended radar antenna that we're operating from with the this whole hyperventilation going on, and you calm us all down about what's going on uh, with our. Uh, privacy that's at stake. A- actually, the, the, it can't be calmed down when you hear, you quote Jimmy Carter saying, we actually don't have a functioning democracy in this yeah, country. When, so, yeah, when you have a former president like that saying something, making a statement like that, it really is a, a, a warning flag that's popping up. It's a warning completely. Well, I want to thank you, Bill Blunt, for being on the show today. And I appreciate getting a chance to read this and a, a chance to give the audience a little bit more of cyber literacy in the process. Thanks for having me on, Claudia. Thank you so much. All right. We'll be right back, everybody, with Neil Kelly of the Orange County Registrar of Voters. Stay tuned. Thanks, everybody, for staying with us. The next guest I have on the show as June 3rd primary in California draws nearer. It's this show's time-honored ritual to bring on Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly. It's been a decade since he's been steering the county's voting system, which thankfully has seen many improvement. Good thing as we're talking 1.6 million voters. Prior to joining Orange County's Registrar of Voters, uh, Neil Kelly developed and grew several companies of his own. He was also an adjunct professor with Riverside Community College's Business Administration Department and served as a police officer in Southern California during the mid-1980s. Neil earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Business and Management from the University of Redlands and an MBA from the University of California. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Neil Kelly. Thank you, Claudia. Good to be here. Good to be, and thank you for my sample ballot, my absentee ballot. <laughs> Glad to be of service. <laughs> wow. So, it, yeah, I couldn't do it without that. So first, let's take up the importance. Now that it's called, it, I see it in the literature, it's called a direct primary. So I've mistakenly maybe called it the open primary. Let's talk about the impact that has on the congressional and the state races. Because I'm talking anecdotally, when I ta- approach my public, uh, I noticed that that important change on our ballot is getting missed about the primary. So what are you dealing with in building that awareness and what do we need to know about that? So that's a good point. I'm, I'm glad you raised it. It's, you know, voters have been used to voting a certain way for the, for the past several decades. Or not voting. Yes. Well, uh, particularly when you're, when you're voting in the primary. And you would normally vote uh, by party. So, for example, you would get your party ticket and you would have choices within your party. That's been going on for several decades. So what's changed is now that's a completely open process, which means that any voter, regardless of their party, can vote for any candidate on the ballot. 
And, you know, this is the first election since 2002 where it really is truly open across the board. So you brought up legislative races like congressional and state assembly and state senate. In those cases, voters will be able to choose from all of the candidates from all of the parties. Uh, And those two candidates that receive the most votes out of those contests will advance to the general election for a runoff. That's the big change. Huge. So... I'm, I am when I hear people say, "Well, I'm not voting in the primary." I'm, I'm getting back to myself. Well, this is this is I, I, actually it's a part one. The way I want to describe this kind of a, a arrangement, it's elections part one and elections part two will be in the fall, and that I don't think they realize that many of the uh, races will be. Uh, elections in the fall with perhaps only one party presented there. There won't be a, a multi-party uh, choice at that time. That's correct. And, you know, it's a, I like the way you describe it. Another way, too, is to say, look, this is this is an election that will produce a runoff. And so it's very important that voters get out there and vote for the candidate of their choice. And also, actually, I just the the, the idea comes to my mind that it the parties can do some some uh, undermining by drafting a a candidate who's not really in the other party, but will drain off some votes from the other opposing party. I mean, and you know what I mean by that. I do know what you mean, and, and it's it's important for you to bring that up and not me. Uh, yes. But you know, the reality is is that candidates and campaigns certainly campaign differently, and they they do different things. But you're right. I mean, the important thing is, is if you support a certain candidate or a certain party, it's even more important that you vote in this election, because that's going to determine how your candidate advances or does not advance to the general election. Right. I mean, and so there are, I've seen on some ballots, there are, there are, I think, uh, uh, quite concerningly, uh, some stealth candidates that are going to drain votes off from, let's say, the the legitimate person who's filed in that with that other party, and so I'm I'm not I'll have an opportunity to bring that up in uh, on the 27th of this month with some candidates who have agreed to, to be on the show. But uh, it's so it's I think voters beware there there are lots of tactics involved with this elections part one, and it's uh, it's very very consequential. So when we're talking, well, let's first. Um, we mentioned that general uh, truth there. Let's talk about some of the deadlines while we're here at uh, at May 13th. There still uh, is opportunity for people to register. That deadline's coming up, though, for that, that drawbridge to come on up. That's right, and that, that deadline's going to be May 19th. Uh, that's 15 days before Election Day. The beauty of online registration, which we now have here in California, is you can do it all the way up until midnight on that day. Uh, so we encourage people, if you're not registered to vote, please make sure you do that before the 19th. And so some of the paperwork requires a signature, but th- this can all be done online on and, May 19th? Yeah, as long as you have a California driver's license or a California ID card, which means you would have a signature on file with DMV, then you can register online. Okay, well, oh, that has lots of consequences. So now is the same thing then with absentee ballot requests, then that uh, same signature with the DMV is uh, workable, operable for uh, requesting the absentee ballot? Well, not for requesting the absentee ballot. So now you don't need a signature to request a one-time absentee ballot. We call it a vote-by-mail ballot now. All right. But you do need a signature for requesting a permanent vote-by-mail ballot, which means you would get one every election. Which I get now. Yeah, but we can't use the DMV signature for that. I don't want to complicate things, but we do have a form online that's real easy to fill out, and then a person can just sign that form and send it in to us. Okay, okay, good. So that's then the uh, deadline for requesting the absentee ballot is the 27th, correct? Correct, seven days before Election Day. Now, that doesn't mean you can't vote a vote-by-mail ballot if you pass that deadline, but you'd have to come into our office in Santa Ana to do that. And is there going to be any early voting for the primary at the office? So we call early voting uh, vote-by-mail voting because that starts 29 days before Election Day, and that's going on right now. Uh, But we don't have early polling place voting out and about in the county. What you can do is come into our office and vote early on a booth here. We always can. And that I'm going to run by the address so people have that. It'll also be in the podcast summary. Sure. It's at 1300 
C building um, on South Grand Avenue in Santa Ana. So you can you can pick up all kinds of things there. But there the ballots are already there. For a person just gives the address. They don't have to know their precinct polling place number. They can just uh, give their address, show their. But I guess they do need to show some identification because they're coming into you to your office? Correct. If they were, were to come in here, then they uh, would show ID for the first time if they're voting in a federal election. And that's the, state, that's the case across California. But if you're a regular voter and you, you get your ballot every election, you don't have to show ID to do that. Okay. All right. So there, that's where you can do that, folks. And so the new citizen registration is a slightly different deadline. And I, I, I know that there's, with 1.6 million voters, we're adding newly uh, naturalized uh, citizens. So it's not a trivial kind of a, a detail. The new re- I see the new citizen registration uh, window here of um, is from May 20th right up until the actual election day. Yes, yeah, so you know, it used to be, Claudia, in the past, that was seven days before election day. So this is the first election we've had that has extended it all the way to election day itself. Just to make it a habit early yeah. in the, a, citizen's, uh, a citizen's life here. So, uh, and have we had, I didn't get to find this out, have we just had recently a swearing-in ceremony of new batch of citizens? There is a naturalization ceremony that's taking place next weekend, I believe. And, uh, you know, what's really exciting about that is we see individuals come down from Pomona where they have that, and they sign right up for voting. That's one of the first things they do. All right. Well, I, I'm one of these days I will go to one of those. It's a my bucket list to be a part of that. I wouldn't call it a pageant, but of that really amazing kind of a ceremony. So. We participated in one just a few months ago in Anaheim. Very exciting. And we were right there when this was happening. We were able to sign people up to register to vote. Well, I'm, I want to get a, a date for when that next time is going to happen, because I, I, I really I deeply sure. want to go do that. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Neil Kelly. He's the Orange County Registrar of Voters. And we're going over all the details that people need to know for the June 3rd primary, which again I'm calling California Elections Part 1, and uh, that everybody must, must, must participate in. And so we have a number of polling places I want for any uh, really very local listeners. Uh, Going over them now is there's the Vista del Campo residents. They all vote at the polling place. It's the Chancellor Dining Room, the Verano Place Commons, that would be for, I believe it should include all the Verano Place residents and I think the Palo Verde uh, residents as well. The Middle Earth's Pippin Dining Commons is for both the Middle Earth residents and the Campus Village housing residents. So, um, oh, wait a minute. No, it's just for Middle Earth. The, I think the Campus Village housing residents, they go on over to the other, um, I'm going to say the other for the the housing over on the other opposite end corner from the Middle Earth there. Then there is the University Hills Community Center for Uni Hills. Hear me, neighbors of mine. That's where we're all headed. Uh, I, I did a little looking up, and uh, where our numbers uh, for the last off-year 2010 primary, I'll, I'll let my neighbors know on a listserv. <laughs> I'm not going to put that on the on the, the radio waves, but uh, it's it could stand a little improving, folks, for that comparable turnout. So then uh, let's look at what other items that we need to know. Is there going to be a number that some that people can call the Orange County Registrar of Voters in case something some crisis is happening? Absolutely, and that number is easy to remember: seven one four five six seven. 7600. We don't put machines in between you and a person, so you go right to an operator. Okay, so that's what we have, uh, folks. It didn't used to be that way, and that's part of the machinery uh, that Neil Kelly has uh, made work all the better. So we don't have a, uh, a record yet, a history with the direct primary. We did have a portion of an open primary in the uh, 2012. So uh, were you able to see any change, any in- uptick in the level of voting with that open primary or a drop? You know, we, we really didn't. We saw some steady levels. I think if you look at primaries and the, and the history of turnout of them over the last decade or so, it's been fairly constant between 25 and 27 percent. 
I'm really hoping with this election coming up that because it's wide open, we're going to see even a higher turnout. I'm encouraged just looking at the last couple of days for ballot returns already. Yes. We're seeing some pretty high volumes coming in, so that's okay. encouraging. Okay, very good. Okay, what I wanted to do is mention for students that are in the Mesa court, that is your, uh, that is your polling place, and that is where the, the students from the other um, from the campus village housing residents will go over to the, the Mesa court. So that's a vital bit of information. Now, for those who have already received their sample ballots, that also is a different look. Do you want to talk to us about that composition, Neil? Well, I think you might be referring, Claudia, to the the ballots themselves inside with the um, with the parties next to it? Correct. Yeah. So, you know, looking at the open primary, all of the ballots are the same. And you might be thinking, well, why are we sending out a sample ballot with each different party represented with the same ballot? You know, it's, it's really clear voters have been used to voting a certain way for decades. And uh, they flip many times right to their party looking for that ballot. So that's why we did it that way. You know, we may change that in the, in the years to come as people get more accustomed to voting this way. Um, but for now, we wanted to make sure all the parties were represented so that people will not be confused. Okay. Yeah, I, I must say, as, as proud and as consistent a voter as I am, that I noticed that, that it, was, it was a little daunting, and then I realized, oh, that's what... That's what you're getting across. Yep. So it's it's a it's a much heftier little document, and and everybody, you've got all the deadlines. You've got your polling place posted on the back there, and for those of you who don't have this paperwork, it's all available online at the OC ocvote.com and the number uh, I'm going to put in the summer here in case some snags are happening. So, is there any different? sort of provisional voting situation with the direct primary, raising the stakes of making sure some, everybody gets to vote? No, there's not. We always want to, and, and thank you, by the way, for mentioning the polling places on campus. Uh, we always want to make sure that voters, when they can, go to their home precinct or their, their polling place because you would get your specific precinct ballot um, that applies to you as a voter. But that doesn't mean that, let's say you work in Anaheim and you live in Irvine, that you can't go to a polling place in Anaheim if you don't have the opportunity to vote in Irvine. And when you do that, you would vote a provisional ballot. So you would vote all the things that you would normally be able to vote in Irvine with the exception of anything specific to Irvine. Uh, And so provisional balloting is there for voters who end up in the wrong precinct or for whatever reason need to vote that provisional ballot. It's 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 a fail-safe for them. And one particular feature, speaking of Irvine, is there is a special election. So it's not a runoff. It's not a primary. It's the end result of a school board member. The the Unified School District has qualified a a special election on the primary ballot. So, folks, this is your chance to weigh in with the, the stakes have been a, a rather high with uh, decisions, land use decisions that have been made in the city and with a, a, a troubling dynamic between the municipality and the school jurisdiction. So uh, there in on the primary is the final election outcome to decide on the fifth member of the Irvine Unified School District. So that's, that's uh, and I'm not sure if there are, Neil, are there any other special elections that are woven into the primary ballot and other parts that you'd like to express for us today? No, that particular type of an election is the only one occurring in Orange County uh, on June 3rd. There's other cities that have some measures on there, but nothing like that Irvine uh, unique contest. Well, a little bit about those measures. Sure. Everybody yeah. knows. So, for example, in the city of Anaheim, uh, they have several measures on the ballot that uh, they're looking to amend their charter, uh, as an example. So that'll be ah, important for Anaheim residents. Right. Uh, the countywide measure, Measure A, is on the ballot, and that is asking the question whether elected officials should be picking up their own pension costs. Right. So that's an important one that is, is across the county. And then, of course, you have the state propositions. There's two on there, 41 and 42, that we would encourage people to, to read about as well. And the there are what four or five different uh, judicial appointments uh, elections on the, my particular ballot. So those are, those are not a runoff. That is the final. That's correct. So the, it, we're making a case, folks, that uh, the primary is nothing to sit out. It's a uh, it's 
all uh, all important to do that. Well, I have here uh, as my second guest today, Neil Kelly, the Orange County Registrar of Voters. Is there are there any other misses your chance any other myths to dispel about what's happening on June third that you you keep running into? You I need a radio station just to give me a little more chance to bring that out. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. You know, one of the things that I hear all the time when I'm out in the county and, and speaking is vote by mail ballots. You know, are they counted in full? When are they counted? Are they always counted last? And and the truth of the matter is is that we start counting those ten days before election day. Uh, particularly in the primary, you're going to see much more heavy volume on vote-by-mail ballots. So we want to get all those done that we can before 8 o'clock on election night. And to dispel that myth, every single one of those that is cast must be counted, regardless of how far apart the contest is. So we count every single piece of paper and ballot that hits our office. Are you having any irregularities with how they're uh, completed? You know, on occasion we do see people that will... you know, write their name on there, or they may write a phone number on their ballot. And, and what does that do to their, their you, outcome? You don't want to do that. We can still count that, but we have to duplicate it. And what that means is you lose the secrecy of your ballot. And that's really important that you want to maintain that secrecy of the ballot. So we just encourage people, don't put anything on your ballot. Treat that just for voting. Uh, that's really important. Fill in that bubble. Absolutely. <laughs> Just the way you do on a standardized test. That's correct. This is not a standard election, though. So, Well, I want to thank you, Neil Kelly, for being on Ask a Leader today. And I believe we're going to have enough to bring up in the run-up to the 2014 general election. So I hope we get back together here on this line in October at, at some time. We'd love to do it. Well, thank you. I know the the. The slope gets steeper with each day that you approach the election uh, coming up. So uh, every day is a, is a uh, is more of a challenge. So thanks for putting us on your calendar for the program today. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Well, we will uh, be back with a few announcements. So Center for Living Peace, they're going to be holding workshops today through May 17th. Commemoration of their fourth year in operation. Details are available at goodhappens.org. Congratulations, Kelly Smith, the founder of Center for Living Peace. Well, that's my guest programming and all for today. The next couple of weeks, as I mentioned earlier, I'm having some candidates on as we move on closer to the primary, looking at the open races in the 45th Congressional District and the open 74th State Assembly District. And if you missed a portion of this or other shows, you can tune into my podcast on askaleader.com or KUCI.org. And given the importance of the um, the open primary, I'm moving up the other time-honored ritual of my Ask a Voter program. And if you'd like to weigh in uh, as a guest about your voting background, voting stories, why you're motivated to vote on that day, you can be my guest. Just check in with me in my email, cshambaugh at KUCI.org. It would be my pleasure to get your interesting story. So let me know. It's June 3rd is when we're going to do the show. So if you're available between the 9 and 10 a.m. hour that voting day, and you've already voted, I hope, then let's, let's do it together on the show. I'll be with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.